I'm Verite, and you're listening to Anatomy of an Artist, a podcast about people, the art they create, and the business behind their art. Hello, and welcome back to another week of Anatomy of an Artist. My guest this week is the project and world built by George Lewis Jr., known as Twin Shadow. In this conversation, we got to trace the arc of his career and gain the perspective of an artist who's been signed to an indie label, major label, and is now newly independent, starting his own record label and cutting out the middlemen entirely. We got to delve into his creative process. We discussed a lot about the culture of the music industry and its effects on artists and artistry. There's a lot in this conversation, and I really hope you guys get something out of it. Thanks so much for listening. Do you like working where you live? Do you find that to be freeing or do you miss kind of a a broader separation? It's funny because I have tried many times in my career to create some separation between work and living and it never seems to work uh, out for me. I just, I have to have the two on top of each other. Um, which creates tons of chaos. Like like right now in my house, I'm just like, can someone come and just organize all of this? But um, I, I'm such an impulsive uh, creative that uh, in LA, it's like if I have to drive 45 minutes to get something down or feel like I need to work, um, it's just not good for me. I have to be able to do it immediately. That makes a lot of sense. I'm, I'm pretty similar, though I am experimenting with this idea. And I know you did this for one of your records. You you built a studio out in, in the cemetery, which mm-hmm. I find very appealing. But having access to all of the tools so that spontaneously you can create and then building out separate time that it's like, okay, maybe I'll finish this body of work and dedicate a certain amount of like time and space to it. Right, right. Yeah, I think that there's, I, I think that there's certainly, I, I was just talking yesterday about how I really do think about making records the way that I think, uh, and this is just sort of an ignorant, um, a slightly ignorant statement because I don't know actually what it means to make a movie. But I, I imagine... Uh, that there's similarities between making a record and making a movie. There's like a certain amount of pre-production, which is like writing and de- and demo making. And um, I'm not much of a demo maker, but there is a lot of sort of like research, I guess, that in- goes into making a record once you've picked a direction that you want to go into. And you would think that it would benefit you in that sort of movie making, album making process to really dedicate a location and a, and a time to work and um, so that everyone can like live their um, actual lives. But it ends up sort of being more like a, like an art house film all the time where it's just like, <laughs> <laughs> where it's just like we work all the time because we have to and we work late because we have to because we can't rent the spaces and whatever like i i sort of think that that's where where my album making or my create my creating is in that space of like 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 on on par with a an art house movie where it's just impulsively working um when you feel things and spontane spontaneously working because spontaneity kind of usually leads to uh, a lot of discovery. There was a, a quote I pulled that when you were first making records, they were lo-fi and people were kind of characterizing them in that way. And you're like, they're not lo-fi. It's just kind of like the best I can do mm-hmm. with what I have. And I think it's it's funny because as an industry and as artists, we always glamorize this pristine process of the fancy studio and the fancy engineer and the practical reality. I feel like no matter where you are in the artistic process for artists who kind of 
execute our own visions as it kind of always is like doing the best you can within the constraints of like how your creativity works and how you plan to like map your records out yeah absolutely absolutely i i i think the best artists sort of utilize the limits of what they have economically i guess they just come right up to that ceiling that they have and they meet the ceiling exactly where the ceiling is and when you feel that in art i think it's 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 a very human it it adds that humanness that a lot of things miss you know i think even if you think about like baz lerman doing romeo and juliet right the ceiling there was like so high compared to so many other film budgets right but what was so great about that versus like him doing moulin rouge or something um i don't know why i'm <laughs> going down this path <laughs> but um romeo and juliet seems to meet the ceiling perfectly right it's just like he had he had plenty of money uh um and he used it he maxed out all the creative he could do from the costuming to the sets to the way the camera works to the, and what you get out of it is this very like poppy but very innovative thing but then you move on to some of his like later work and you're like oh man like the budget must have been you know even more through the roof and then like they're shooting above that point or they're not they're shooting underneath it and you can kind of feel it it's kind of like things fall apart under like under the like relying on costuming relying on dance routines and then like the story gets kind of like muffled inside of all of that and i think that that's the deal as as artists is like always meeting your ceiling and not it sounds weird to like say don't exceed the ceiling but like don't exceed your resources and not have something to kind of show for it it's honestly a perfect way to put it right because you can make an equally as compelling video mm -hmm. for five hundred dollars as five thousand dollars as five hundred thousand dollars if you're being effective in your creative and you're being effective with your resources right and that that type of economy also it also speaks to me in a sort of spiritual way where it's like uh i don't i don't want to sound too like uh npr here but like <laughs> it has like a conservationist kind of thing where you're like you're not taking more than you're not taking more than you deserve you're not taking you're not stepping you don't have to step on people to create the work that you're making I think that's like really important is just I don't know who said that to me the other day it was something about just like um take all you want just don't don't step on anybody you know while you take it or something like that I don't I don't know what the quote was but like I very much really believe in that and I think it's it's really easy when things get sort of like lofty to um mm -hmm. to start stepping on people even when that's not your intention to it's just sort of like things become unmanageable and it's a very natural human reaction to sort of like elbow people out of the way to get to get what you're after and um and I, I don't really like that in my process and I, not that i not that very many people are involved in my record making process um so i don't i don't i don't have that either i mean that makes sense in the context that we're a culture that has conditioned us to strive for more in every way, constantly, and to for us to like measure ourselves to the external. But for a second, I want to go back to the beginning. And like when you were younger, when you started playing music, A, how did you start playing music? And did you see a path forward for yourself as a professional musician or what were you measuring yourself up to at that point? Um, I think uh, uh, once I figured, I, I, I always say this like, I feel like I had no difficulty finding what I wanted to do in life. Um, and I don't exactly know when the spark really happened, but from a very, very early age, I think I just, I knew I wanted to do what music did to me, um, uh, which was like 
it like just transported me constantly. Um, I was just thinking about, um, I think I was like maybe, I don't know what grade I was in, maybe fourth or fifth grade when Green Day Dookie came out. And I remember a girl in my class, Clementine Wilson, I still remember her name. She gave me a, a Dookie on tape. And I wasn't even listening to like rock music then. I was like only listening to like Boys to Men and like Keith Sweat and like R&B stuff. Mm-hmm. But she gave me Green Day Dookie and it was such a flying saucer that like picked me up, you know, and like took me somewhere that I never, that I didn't understand. And having like, having something like pick you up and like remove you from your reality in such a huge way um, and make you feel things that you just didn't even quite understand because you're, because they're much more, they're much older than you and they're expressing all these emotions on a record that you haven't even really dealt with yet. Um, So like, it really just like transported me. And so I used to try to find this really kind of specific place where I started thinking about being a musician, but it really has to do with like all these like early records that I had access to things like my, my parents playing, um, Paul Simon's Graceland in my house a lot as a kid, like that transported me in a big way. Um, uh, listening to like Cat Stevens records that transported me in a whole different way. So um, usually I would have like a really stock answer, but I've been thinking about that recently and I don't really know when it is or what it is exactly that made me want to be a musician, but I feel like I've thought about it since I can remember. Like I don't remember the like actual point. I mean, I knew, I know the point where I was like, oh, I'm going to play guitar and sing was after uh, um, after I was I was in the band um, like in seventh grade and I was playing saxophone. There was a trumpet player who put his trumpet away and he went over to this other part of the band room and started playing guitar and singing. I think he was singing like a Radiohead song, and I just remember all these people like flocking to him and sitting down around him, and I was just like, oh yeah, that's what I'm gonna do. You know, like that was probably the moment where I was like, okay, I'll be, I'll be a musician. It's such a weird thing to just be innately driven to do something. And especially like on my end, it was similar. Like I I played in guitar club in middle school. (laughs) That's cool. I wish we had one of those. (laughs) Like it was just this thing that I took hyper serious and I was like very determined yet had no outside context for what that could practically look like but it was this feel it was literally me playing green day covers and like Mm -hmm. cranberries covers and being as angsty as possible but was there a switch in a moment where it kind of migrated from okay i'm singing and playing guitar to like the genesis of twin shadow and the desire to be an artist and create a world for people I mean, that that road has been so, uh, there's so many detours on that road. <laughs> um, uh, and it's been such a such a, uh, a nuanced process. And I've had such a nuanced life so far. And so the, um, I don't know, all the I find all these things sort of hard to answer these days because I think the most major point in my life as a musician was when I decided that Twin Shadow was going to be a thing Um, because Mm -hmm. really like up until that point I always wanted to be I always sort of relied on other people to make music like uh, I was always in in bands and I wanted to be in a band and uh, wanted or like even before I wanted to be in a band I wanted to be in a like in like an R&B group or something like that. Like that was my dream as a kid. Um, it was always, it was always the idea of community and a, a community of people who make music together. Um, and I think there was a very definitive moment where I wasn't seeing success in being and relying on other people where um, interestingly enough, uh, my the guy who is my manager now sort of like 
very plainly uh, and very practically, because he's a very kind of practical person, um, just said, what's, uh, I, I tried to make a record with a bunch of friends and it didn't work out. And he was just like, what is it that you need to feel like you can successfully make music, the music that you want to make? And I was just like, I think I need to produce it. I think I need to, I need to have a computer and I need to know how to, I need to know how to record myself. And I think that's very common. It's commonplace. Now all of us are, we're interfacing with Zoom, like how, like people who are like 11 years old now, are, like will know how to set up a Zoom conference call and like get audio in and out and like no single signal path in this very sort of like um, informal way. But in 2009, um, it, it actually wasn't, as easy for people to know how to like set up a microphone or what a DAW was, or uh, um, it was more sort of like a specialized thing. Um, not incredibly specialized, but more so than it is now. And as soon as I took that upon myself to record myself, to understand what the sort of like more of the nerdy technical side of being a, being a musician was I started to realize how much control I had over this entire universe and then realizing, oh, I have all the control over this entire universe and I'm not subject to anyone else's moods or willingness to do something. I'm, it's all on me, which comes with its own chains. But as soon as I realized that it was all on me, I had access to like the entire universe it felt like well yeah because you're not waiting for somebody to do the thing for you but th that kind of leads me to a curiosity when you're sitting and building out this kind of project on your own fully autonomous what was your perception of uh, a path forward and and where did like labels fit into that because as uh, you know we know it's like signing to a label is kind of offering up some of that autonomy to but just in a different way maybe not purely creatively but in the overall ecosystem of a project mm -hmm. um yeah i mean the label things it's a funny thing because it's uh as a musician for most of your time as a musician before you ever get signed or before you actually like put together a project that is worthy of being signed or whatever, <laughs> um, you sort of really do have, there's sort of two narratives that you could be fed. One that like signing a record deal is the ultimate uh, achievement and two, that record labels are evil. And what's funny is that the first one is sort of total bullshit. Because um, all that it all that it actually is, is like, you, uh, you, it's you going to a bank to borrow some money that if you don't pay back, you're not going to get your legs broken over. Um, uh, it's a bank who's willing to take a take a fairly big risk, but not really, um, on you. The second one is partially true that, that, um, labels, especially big ones are evil. It's, 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 it's as evil as any other bank. It's just like when, when jumping into the world of capital, there is just an inherent you know, it's true. Money, I don't know if money is the root of all evil, but money is, is inherently partially evil. It's just, it's just the deal. But I think that this first kind of mythical thing of like a label deal, assigning the signing of a record contract being this like pinnacle is, um, it's an achievement for sure, but it is certainly not the peak of anything. And I think that's a narrative that needs to be like washed out of the the 
how we talk about music. Um, I think it needs to be more like people need to know like this signing a label deal just means that you're getting money to push your vision. It's just a bank that you're borrowing money from and you're going to have to pay it back at some point. You know, I think that's the thing is just like just like every other just like buying a house, you know, just like in, investing in a, in a business. Um, that's what you're doing. That's how I feel about it now. Of course, like when I signed my first deal to Terrible Records and and 4AD, I very much had this myth in my mind that was about like signing a record deal is the ultimate achievement. Um, and I had to I had to let that I had to experience it to to let that those myths wash away. You're right. It is kind of a very binary argument where there it's either record labels are amazing. It's like the pinnacle of the idea of success and or it's like literally evil. And when you recognize that, oh, no, record labels are just banks and they're inherently cold because numbers are cold. It's it's not necessarily people listening to the music. It's people who have to adhere to certain structures and and recruitment numbers and statistics in order to keep their jobs. It's inherently not about the art, but it's this weird mixture of art and commerce, which I have this theory that like once you inject money into art, it just like changes its DNA. Mm-hmm. And that's not inherently a bad thing because it's a necessary evil to kind of inject into the process if we're talking about then making a living and building a business out of something that you love doing but it is something that I feel like there's such a still which amazes me a lack of education with so much information out there and I think part of that is artists not having realistic and practical conversations with one another about their experiences and about the benefits and the pitfalls of all paths, because all paths, you know, have great things about them and all paths have really shitty aspects. And so signing to 4AD, which is when I was coming up, like the ultimate cool kid, very credible and artistic label. What is a benefit you think that that brought you and your project? I can't I can't really like uh, quantify the the benefits that I had directly from it. Mm-hmm. I know that there are some. I know that there are, there, the, that perception is a, a lot of um, what we do in music making. We're, we're, we are in some ways like illusionists and we, hmm. are, are, we are creating an illusion half the time. Um, and that's really, um, that can be a really beautiful thing. And I think perception of, you know, getting favorable review views in cool publications and being on a cool label and starting at a cool indie label uh, owned by by a cool producer, like all of those things in 2010, I think certainly helped create an idea of what Twin Shadow was. I don't really have a good observation on what that was because I'm inside of it. Um, so it would take like a fan to, to tell you exactly what it meant for somebody to know that I was on 4D. I have my doubts that people even, mm. most people who aren't musicians even know the name of that label. It's such a small fraction of, of the picture that um, it's hard to say what impact it has or had on on my career but it but it's a part of the story so yeah well it's so interesting because I my whole experience I've been you know independent the entirety of my career right and so I think that there's also a mechanism in my brain that has always felt like I've lacked the cosine Uh right that comes with like those certain networks and so I'm always curious like what people's experiences have been within those systems and and how they've benefited because again it's every path has its inherent like ups and downs and so yeah I have autonomy but there's this sense of I guess insecurity of you still want that top-down relational thing and I've just felt like an independent loner um and so it's it's it is kind of 
interesting to hear you say when you're in it, it's, it's much harder to feel that impact, but it is such a perception game. And we are building, we are like crafting these narratives for other people to experience. And they're not necessarily always reflective of the reality of the situation when you're in it. Totally. I'm glad you brought, you brought that up that you've been uh, independent the whole time and how you how you have this feeling which is very valid right because we do sort of very much live in this cosine culture that it, and it is very real like the cosine really does sort of you know it, it puts you in front of the the cosigner's audience um and that is important and that that obviously has this this sort of inherent quality of expansion I think the I think the thing that people should think about is like, you know, that I think Kendrick says there's levels to it, and, you know, and it's like, it's easy to think of levels as high to low. And I think of levels more as like a horizontal thing, like a thing that moves side to side, because I honestly don't believe that there is anything there is any better in terms of like the way that you grow to really grow it has to be in line with who you are and and what you're about it's important to know just like what game you're playing and i don't even mean it as strategically as that but this idea that there there are limitless routes to take and being confident in the route that you're taking is really important and so this idea that like me as an independent artist would sit and compare myself to somebody who's on a completely different road with completely different challenges and completely different benefits. Like I think over the course of my career, you start to put those dots together and you're like, oh, okay, you know what? I, I love the analogy of it's not top down, it's horizontal because I think, and we can get into this because I know that you're newly independent again, is this idea of maybe what's most important is the foundation. Right. So it's not necessarily this kind of top down mentality of I need millions and millions and millions of listeners, but maybe it's I need a much more concentrated and dedicated foundation of a fan base. And those interactions, maybe they're way more meaningful than having 10 million passive people just like hearing your song at the mall. I guess I don't want to skip the middle step. So you were signed independently and then you made the jump to major so so you kind of i i love it because you have all of the angles <laughs> yeah okay. and so like what prompted the shift to a major and did was there like a, a marked difference from in uh from being signed to an indie label and did you kind of see a massive growth from that this is all stuff that i've just been thinking about because i've been doing interviews for the first time in a while and, <laughs> and doing podcasts and it's like I'm always just like I really don't want to bore people with the whole thing because it is really in some ways it's incredibly uneventful but uh but it but it but uh f um out of respect for your question I um um I left for I left for AD because I felt a bit like it was just this very democratic process, sort of all the artists got traded the same. And um, uh, I I sort of wanted more resources because I had sort of a bigger vision. I wanted more money for music videos. I wanted more of a marketing budget to do, to do things outside of the box, all that stuff. I moved to a major and Warner Brothers bought me out of my contract because I, because, um, um, I wanted to make this big pop rec pop record, and I I made a record that they felt was was that at that time. Um, that record was did not do well. It did it didn't <laughs> it it didn't do what I wanted it to do. It didn't want they what they wanted it to do. Um, I'm not. I don't. I don't want to gloss over all the nuance of like signing between labels, but I really I I I'm glossing over it because. I I I really want to get away from this this myth that I was duped into thinking mm -hmm. about of that there is some sort of high to low progression of being an artist and that a label has something to do with that. It does in the sense that there is more money 
at a at a big label. They're willing to take a little bit of a bigger risk on you. But to be honest, the deals are very similar. The the recoupment that you have to do, it's all it's all very sim it's all very similar. You're st it's still just a bank you owe money to, and they own uh usually your your masters and sometimes they take some money from your touring and sometimes they take money from different parts of where you, of your income streams um i also don't love talking about labels because i'm not an expert um and i i make a point to say that because i've decided as an artist and this is this is the biggest reason why i'm an independent artist again and why i didn't go looking for another label to be on. I genuinely was tired of going to meetings with people who just want to keep their jobs and tell you one thing and do do the opposite. Mm -hmm. I wanted to I want to know how the money that I have is spent. I want to own my masters. I want to be able to take the lion's share of the income of all my income streams and filter it back into my business so that I can make more records. And I a little bit have a desire to help other artists um, get have support, a support system that allows them to have the lion's share and that allows them to not be coaxed into always borrowing large amounts of money from big banks. Because I think that we also, because young people especially, have so much power on the internet, they need to be utilizing that to uh, not getting into these, not getting into this same system and not believing the same old myth about labels. And so... I that's my gloss over the label <laughs> label experience because I really do think it's actually quite boring um and it's and it's just steps that I had to take mistakes that I had to make um in my life myths that I had to uh dispel and and I've always had a really good team that has sort of like my manager's always been like a label's just a bank a label's just a bank a label's just a bank but you have these very formative uh -huh. years where you think of this thing of like, oh, if I signed them, then and Katy Perry's on that label, and this person's on that label, and <laughs> uh, you know, like, you know, I did think when I signed to Warner Brothers, I was like, oh, Prince is signed to that signed to the label. Oh, that's so cool. Like, you think that there's these this correlation, and there usually is not. It, there can be for for some people, like. There, there can be connections made and, and it does happen. And that's what we get shown. We get shown all the stuff that works. We never get shown the stuff that doesn't work. And there's a lot more stuff that doesn't work than there is stuff that works. You know, ride that wave down to where I'm at now. And it's like, I just want to be in control. Sort of like how I said about starting Twin Shadow. I want to understand more facets of the the whole picture so that I have a bit more control over um, my path. That, I don't feel like that was a gloss over at all. <laughs> I feel like you hit all of the points. I feel like you talked, uh, <laughs> you talked plenty. <laughs> no, but there are no experts. The, the longer that I am pursuing a career in music the more you realize no one knows what the fuck they're doing, <laughs> right? Everybody is, whether you are fully independent or the CEO of a major label, maybe if you're the CEO of a major label, you have a few more data points to compare to. Um, everybody is just trying and, and nobody knows what a hit song is. Nobody knows what a hit record is. And I think that the only thing that matters is people's experience. And I think that, I mean, that's literally why I started this podcast because I felt like no one was having realistic and practical conversations of what it actually means to be an artist, live a life, right? And build a business and how you balance all of those things. And I had none of that guidance coming up and it's cost me, quite frankly, a lot of time and heartache <laughs> and money Yeah, <laughs> learning on my own. And there was also a sense that because I'm independent, people assumed I hate major labels, which I don't. I've just never been presented a contract 
that I would sign based on my success being independent. Hmm. And so I think that going back to our earlier point that, yeah, major labels are not binary, either like the best or evil, but it's a risk and there's calculated risk to either path, right? Independence is great. You own all of your successes. When something hits, you make a fuck ton of money, right? You get to really have that autonomy. But, you know, when something goes wrong, you eat that cost. That is your personal money, right? You're not getting paid back for that. And so I think this idea of just knowing what you're getting into and accepting that risk. And if you know what you're getting into and want to make that calculated risk, because like you said, and and I feel like this conversation comes up more and more, we only look at the successes because that's all we're shown. No one's showing us the 70% of artists on a major label who have never released a record, mm. who've been stuck in a contract for five years, can't get a record out, but they're in a five album deal, yeah. right? So yeah. essentially it's like purgatory. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's, there's all kinds of ugliness, you know, there's host, there's true hostage situations going on. Um, um, in all the, all these places, but, uh, but also, you know, you can, uh, independent artists can hold themselves hostage. I mean, I know so many people who are so insanely talented, who are sitting on so much music. Like there's people who who hold themselves hostage. It's, you know, the more I look at everything, uh, the more I just am kind of like, it's a, it is, it's total chaos. It's, it's a total free for all. And, and the only important thing is, yeah, what you said about us, about um, real stories, real, real kind of like uh, what's really going on. But, but maybe even more so all that being an artist is is about really or, or or feeling that you have some success as an artist if you want to if you want traditional success i guess what mm-hmm. you know success is such a weird word um but all it is really is like it's it's about momentum it's like can you can you throw this rock into space and know that it'll go forever? Like if, if you can, if you can do just that, that's pretty incredible. Now making that rock, once it's like been sent into space, uh, not just be a constant speed, but be a speed that that gains speed. If you want that, that's a, that's that other step. Um, And that's like, something I'm still trying to figure out. How do I make this thing? I've been lucky in that um, music has sustained me for, for a long time compared to what a lot of other artists experience. Some artists experience like, you know, like two years of having money and being able to have the apartment they want and the this and that. And I've really been like, I've been comfortable for a while. But like, my thing is just like, Okay, how do I add more how do I add more speed to this thing? How do I mm-hmm. how do I how do I get more wind behind it? Um and that's what I'm hoping to do with um Shuri Shuri, my new label, um, is to create my own wind, to create my own push and to just go on a different adventure um with music. You just said so much, especially about A, our preconceived notions about our ideas of success and how they probably shape what decisions we make as we go. And so I'm I'm curious, and I usually ask this earlier on, and I just quite frankly forgot, but like, did you have a preconceived notion of what success meant for you when you were starting out? Like like a holy grail of this is what I want my life and career to look like? Um I mean, you know, fortunately and unfortunately, those of us who were probably born in the 80, any at any time in the 80s, maybe early 90s, we we turned on we we were in the smack in the middle of a lot of projection. 
of what <laughs> success was, right? We had MTV. You had Michael Jackson, like, doing, like, the most monstrous live performances you ever saw. You had Janet Jackson's. You had... You had Madonna. We literally like lived in the at the peak of projecting success, telling success stories. You know, like if you if you grew up with your eyes on TV in the '90s, like what was anything than like sort of like the idea of celebrity? Like even Bill Clinton, Hillary Clinton seemed like celebrity uh you know american presidential royalty like uh like you had so much coming at you from a place that uh, uh, not not from this not from an a thing that was like algorithmically figuring you out every single day but a thing that was just <laughs> like regionally f- had sort of summed up what you were regionally and was like pumping out what success means what success is and so so it's a it's a it's a blessing and a curse because we had like like who will ever be as immaculate a performer as as a madonna or a michael jackson at that time um those things will never happen again i feel like that 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 sort of peak that that is um that sort of great that sort of greatness on display um, that's really where it's like the, the, the thing of like desire and talent and hard work really, truly all met at this crossroads. Um, and so that's both poisonous and both incredibly uh, motivating as as someone growing up at that period, because it's because certainly those were the those those were that was the bar. And then, like, mm-hmm. you spend your life trying to even have a taste of that bar. And it's like, well, it's just like it's just different times. We're moving into different times that the um, those kinds of that kind of stardom, that kind of fame, that kind of support of someone's vision. Uh, it still happens to a certain degree. There's still massive, massive artists um, and a lot of money behind behind them who are talented. But it, but it isn't quite as um, it's not projected at us as uh, in in such a potent way where it's like where everyone falls under the umbrella of these artists every single person on earth <laughs> you know um, that was that was the closest it ever got to that and um, th- that is a hard thing to project yourself. Um, project how you fit into that sort of uh, narrative or that uh, um, that mold or whatever. Yeah, we definitely lived in a transition from that mega unattainable stardom, right? Obviously, like the Madonnas, the Michael Jacksons, and I think TRL had a profound influence and at least me and like my version of like what celebrity looked like. And then it also transitioned into the American Idol effect where it was like, maybe I can get discovered, right? right? Me just like normal Kelsey existing somewhere in the world. And I think that it has. You're you're totally right. It's like we've transitioned into a new era where that sort of stardom will never exist again. But that being said, there is such a long tail of opportunity for artists to build really sustainable careers now that, you know, essentially music creation and distribution has been democratized. Um, and people's focuses are are kind of, I think, less on less looking up and more so maybe wanting to be a part of a project and a part of a community where they feel as though they add value. And I think that that's an interesting kind of paradigm shift that I've been excited to see. And quite frankly, it benefits me and and you and, and artists who are maybe approaching this like less so from that top-down mentality. Mm. I agree. I think... I do sort of see, I really believe that artists should 
follow whatever it is they have inside of them. If they want to be bigger than Michael Jackson, then absolutely, please. I'd love to, I'd love to see somebody who really believes that achieve that. That's that's incredible. And, and, and if they're if they have a competitive spirit and if that matters to them, I I really am at a place where I do not think of what traditional success and and non-conforming success and blah blah blah. I don't. I really don't have a value system for these things. Um, I I mm-hmm. I believe all of these things are valid. I I the only thing that I believe. I have a hard belief on is that you sh- your art should not make anyone suffer. Um, uh, I mean, I don't I don't believe that our, our our lives in general should not make anyone else suffer. Like that is that is the one and only rule that I have in life. I don't have a moral code on much of anything other than that. Um, that there mm-hmm. that there should be no suffering and and. Yes, it it is typical that when you strive for things that are sort of unattainable, that um, you make people suffer. Look at look at all the insanely wealthy people in this country. Mm-hmm. Take a close look at their business structure, and you'll see that there's tons of people always suffering underneath these massive entities. And so that that'll kind of give you a good hint at how success, traditional success, can be destructive. Um, but it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. I don't know. Um, you know? Uh, yeah. Well, earlier you kind of talked about momentum and you had a really great analogy about throwing the rock into space, right? And it, like, inherently you can throw the rock, but how much momentum it catches once it's kind of out of your reach and, and into orbit I guess is a perfect combination of like hard work and luck and, you know, the universe kind of casting its smile down on you, however, however you want to put it. But I guess, and I have my own experiences with this, has the kind of stress and maybe pressure, whether on yourself as an artist or external pressure from entities that you worked with to keep that momentum going and build that momentum and perhaps like fill some sort of what the fuck is the word god it's i don't know identity for lack of a better word there is the perfect word for it did you did you ever kind of feel that and were there ways in which you coped and now that you're independent are you dealing with that differently i think it's just like any other human struggle um it is very hard to it's very hard just first of all to be a human being and to know Mm -hmm. uh how you want to live your life how you want to experience this very kind of short time um it's hard enough to do that to create a artistic identity and to live inside of that that, and the way that the lines blur between uh you eating and sleeping and loving people uh, and you expressing something that might be deeper or creating a world for other people to live in. Um, All those things are very confusing. And my truth is that it never stops being difficult. It, 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 it is a constant, um, it's a constant figuring out. Um, and, uh, and once you figure it out, then there's another kind of question or another, another thing to do. Um, I will say, I think you said the word pressure. Um, I think maybe, um, yeah, I do think when you get into any, any business, there's pressures when you get into the entertainment business, Mm -hmm. um, um, the pressures are even greater. And um, I've dealt with those pressures in very unhealthy ways. And I've dealt with those pressures in really healthy ways. I think anyone who is in the entertainment business, who has the resources to um, be in therapy, have a, have a, have a trainer at the a gym 
trainer to keep their bodies healthy. Um, Keep your body healthy, keep your mind healthy. Those are like the two biggest things. And what sucks is that not all people have access to that. And, And it often is the people who don't have access to that immediately who get exploited the most in this industry and deal with the most pressure. And that is what uh, that's what I'd like to see sort of eradicated from the the music business is just like if you're going to if you're going to take the genius of an art artist and market and use it and put all this pressure on them, then you have to at least give them those two basic things. That's like a right, in my opinion, your, that your body is healthy and that your mind is healthy. And that way you can you can concrete create you can take the pressure of all of it. Mm-hmm. And for me now. Uh, it's something that I focus on a lot now is this like I need to do those things for myself in order to continuously deal with the pressures that come Um, because in the last 10 years very much of the time I didn't deal with the pressures in a healthy way and they did lead to sort of these these really low points Um, not only in my career but in in my in my life in my uh, in my mental health. Well, and I think that to expound upon that, we're also in an industry that I think historically has glamorized the depression and the artistic struggle and, you know, kind of the mental health implication that that has as on artists as, you know, the best artists are tortured, right? right? And I think that that's such a false narrative and I think that you know there was definitely a period of time similar in my life where it was you know the the more chaos and the the, right the more feeling and and the more like tumultuous um I don't know vibrations that I could have in my system must mean that like my art is somehow going to be more deep and profound and I think that now having access and being able to prioritize mental health and and taking care of myself it's like actually depression doesn't really make me more creative it's it kind of just you know makes me want to die totally um i i really um i i definitely believe believe and agree with you that depression is not a useful um thing in art um what happens maybe after depression is what the 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 coming out of depression right um um a depressive state is not that you can't make anything i think um i saw oh yeah i saw a really cool thing about like leonard bernstein i think was talking about um beethoven and of course this was opinion but his feeling was like he analyzed like the melodic structures and rhythmic, all the elements of like Beethoven compositions. And he was talking about how, you know, Beethoven very famously, infamously was like this tortured individual going deaf, like everything wrong with him, you know, like, um, uh, and certainly I'm sure that there were struggles in his life I, I don't know enough about his life at all but he was talking but I know the myth of Beethoven and he he was talking about how there's no way that that uh, that th- I think there were some documents that showed that he was a, at a, in a very positive places in his life when he wrote some of his most famous pieces and he talks about how impossible it would be to write what Beethoven wrote if he had been depressed um I think there's a difference between having anxiety and having depression. And I think anxiety can be a very generative place. Um, It's not fun necessarily, but it can be a very, it can make, it can create a lot. Depression cannot. And when people suffer deep traumas like um, family members dying, close people close friends dying around them um uh and and they go and anyone who get who comes close to a depressive state and they have this added pressure of needing to create um it it can be very um uh, it can be very dangerous for those those people and um yeah i i do think i i do think talking about it and, and normalizing the idea that that uh, 
tortured artist is not a is not a a good image. I don't I don't want to like again I don't I don't like to totally like I think a lot of stereotypes in in our industry are are good because they're part of the they're part of the the magical storytelling of our industry and because a lot of people believed in some of these bullshit myths um because people believed in the myths a lot of beautiful things happened we can't we can't take away all of the ugliness it'll never go away it can't it can't go away it is it is uh um ugliness is is has its own beautiful way of of existing in everything that we do um but i do think for people who are people who are oftentimes victims of other people's oppression in the industry i do think that we can talk about um uh uh lifting those people up marginalized people in the industry um uh need that sort of protection of like hey it's cool that it's cool that you believe in this myth but the truth is this and and you should protect yourself in this way i think that's 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 an important conversation to have but but the the this the storytelling the fairy tales of it all i think all that stuff still needs to be floating around us yeah it's it's such a strange balance right because i feel like part of what kept the fairy tale alive was lack of access in a lot of ways right Right. when when there's a separation of the only time that i can access this information etc is you know me in my living room and you know celebrity on television but I feel like it's been really interesting to watch social media become so pervasive and, and such a normal part of our daily existence to where a lot of that access is is much more immediate and mm-hmm. much more transparent. And, and it's much harder to kind of keep the myths alive in the same way. So now it just I feel like it become it comes on artists to be creative, right? Of okay, cool. How am I going to create my world? What kind of figure do I want to be within my world? And then how much access do I want to give to actually what's underneath maybe the initial veneer Mm -hmm. to fans? And so I guess to like start to wrap this up, we're at like the sunset of the conversation. But thank you so much for doing this. (laughs) I I knew when I read that interview with you, I was just like, you got You have to come on. You have have things to say. (laughs) But now that you're independent, releasing this new record under your own label, what is the world that you're trying to create and how do you see that interfacing with lifelong twin shadow fans? Um, that's a huge, huge question. That, um, <laughs> no pressure. That, that uh, I should probably be able to answer by now. Um, but what I hope to create for, because that's, that I like that you the last word you said was fans because um when we have these discussions a lot of it can become about me 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 and you 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 and and the individual um and how the individual deals with the music industry and how the individual benefits from the industry and and it's very easy to leave out truly the most important part which is fans i i 100 percent believe that um uh, like I am in service to people who love my music and my goal is to get more people to love my music. Um, and for the people who love my music, what I, I'm essentially creating or hoping to create with Shri Shri is a, a more true response to my impulses as an artist um, so that the records I make, if I make art, if I make products, if I, if I make um, if I make anything for the masses, um, that they understand that there's sort of a immediate quality control going on, that it is direct to consumer, that it is um, that it is an exchange between two people, and there's not twenty middlemen who who don't check out. That, that this business between myself and my fans 
is a business that is more clear of corruption and more clear of uh, uh, the weight that happens when there's a lot of middlemanning. And, uh, and my hope is that on the, qual- on the quality side, what the fan gets is a, a deeper insight into what I do as an artist, a, a, a music that is perhaps more untouched and more free and therefore maybe more uplifting, we hope, um, and um, just a better experience in general um, where people feel holistically that being a fan of Twin Shadow it benefits them. Um, and, and uh, you know, and I, I say all that and and but I but I always need to make an emphasis that there can be a lot of words thrown at at this and and I could I can I can get into this place of like really articulating it but there's nothing more important magical and indescribable as experiencing music that transports you and mm-hmm. All that I want is to continue to create music that does that. And that's really, that's really it. Anatomy of an Artist is a podcast created, recorded, and edited by me, Verite. It was produced by Vanessa Magos with the help of Yesenia Bonilla. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.